Welcome to episode 193 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Mark Hislop. Today, I'm going to be talking to Joe Anglin, a former Wild Rose MLA in Alberta from 2012 to 2015, and head, or maybe former head, of the Lovesta area group that opposed uh, the Heartland Transmission Project, and, and he's he's been involved in controversies over uh, several transmission projects, and is known as somebody who get, digs into the details and isn't afraid to oppose the powers that be, uh, fight for the little guys, the landowners, he, he very knowledgeable around the Alberta electricity system. And given what's been going on in Alberta recently, including the seven-month moratorium on renewable projects that was uh, declared uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago by Premier Danielle Smith, I thought it was time to catch up with Joe again. I interviewed him way back when, uh, long before actually even Energy Media Days in our first uh, online news media business, and haven't talked to him since. So it's time for it's time for a catch up. And uh, so I want to welcome you to the interview, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, there's three things that I want to talk about today. One is the former transmission uh, controversies and how that has increased power bills for unnecessarily for Alberta consumers. That's one. Number two, you've been involved in a couple of renewables projects yourself as a consultant. And so the take, your take, maybe even your client's take, on what that moratorium means for investment in that sector in Alberta. And then I just want to play it's a little catch up on you personally, because you've been doing some interesting things later in your career that I think uh, our listeners would be interested in. So let's start with the transmission stuff. Give us, you know, going back to 2004, I think there have been four big transmission projects, then very costly passed on to the ratepayer, And maybe can you give us a, a brief overview of what those projects are and why they were controversial and and how they uh, they've affected uh, you know consumers uh, electricity bills. Sure, um, we'll start right back in two thousand where there was a project uh, proposed by uh, it was called the Northern Lights Project. It was proposed by Trans Canada to uh, export what they thought was going to be excess electricity coming from the heartland and Fort McMurray area uh, that they wanted to market in Southern California in the Southwest of the United States. Uh, this was a private project. When they ran the numbers, it was not feasible and they abandoned the project. It just was not feasible. And it was, what happened from that is the Alberta government uh, decided to step in and said, well, if a private company is not going to do this, we're going to do it. Um, and we needed to all, and we still do, we need to maintain our own system. So there really was a need at the time, because um, I, I, I do know the facts quite well on this, to upgrade this backbone between Edmonton to Calgary, and it should have been upgraded on the east of Alberta, which would have made it an ATCO project under the current rules. But somehow the proposal that the government dictated would be in the West and be the proprietary possession of uh, Altalink. And not only that, the engineering design was flawed and was flawed significantly. 
throughout all that, and that's when I got involved, it's like I had a background as a transmission engineer in uh, fiber optics. So for me to understand what I was reading was easy enough. So that's where the opposition started because the public pays. This is, a, this is um, imposed on all of us. So throughout that battle, which we actually won all the way to the appeals court, uh, the legislature stepped in and that's a, and they just legislated two HVDC lines, uh, which are dinosaurs. And I, I mean that in, in the metaphorical sense that, uh, and I think I wrote to you, so we might as well have built an aircraft carrier for that amount of money and put it in central Alberta for a tourist attraction. The lines are not useless, but they're not being used and they likely will never be used. Um, and that's where I, I disagree with David Gray on that. Okay, so uh, Alta, what is Eltalink? Describe maybe describe that for our uh, for our listeners. When the government um, deregulated electricity, they needed to break up the industry between distribution, transmission, and generation. Uh, there really were no takers on buying uh, Transalta's transmission line, um, although I know Atco made a reasonable bid. I, I do know that. But something went array, something went wrong. Um, uh, we ended up with SNC Lavalin and creating a company called Altalink. And they bought the asset for considerably more than it was worth. Nobody knows why. Nobody ever even challenged that. And this is a public asset. This is a regulated utility. So Altalink was born from that uh, SNC Lavalin uh, purchase. And there's a theory that for overpaying, and they did significantly overpay, that they were rewarded with given a new transmission line, which is very profitable. That's a guaranteed rate of return on these things from the public. Aha. Uh -huh. That all it's all coming into focus now. Uh and Altalink has since been sold at least once or twice, but it's it's owned currently owned by Berkshire uh, Hathaway, right? I mean the Warren Buffett's company. Yeah, yeah. I've met them. I've met them. Yeah. So why would why would Warren Buffett want to buy a transmission line in Alberta? Well, it, at the time, and it's still very much profitable, uh, when he made that purchase, the return on investment in most type of Berkshire Hathaway investments would be close to the, um, the interest rate, um, the prime rate of a few points above. Well, that transmission line had a guaranteed rate of return, I think of 9%, which was probably more than double or triple uh, the rate of return of uh, the prime rate. So it was extremely profitable. Berkshire Hathaway is extremely smart in terms of its investment. And the one question they never answered, and I raised this at a hearing at the time, I think Berkshire Hathaway had 600 million on the table unaccounted for to make this purchase um, above the value of Altalink. And um, nobody explained how they plan on getting that money back. Now, I, I know how they plan on getting that money back. They plan on putting it in the rate base and making the public pay on that. And they probably did by now. Hey, what about these two uh, 500 kilovolt transmission lines uh, 
east and west of of Calgary and, and Edmonton. Can you explain that a little bit and and why they? I mean, David Gray, who's an economist, we had him on here uh, a few weeks ago, and he was he was talking about the system, the electricity system that Alberta could have if it had a, a broader vision and and wanted to integrate more renewables and make better use of the transmission infrastructure that it had and so on. So you're, that's the interview you're referring to. And, and so he talked about these two 500 kilovolt, these high voltage transmission lines and how he said they were half full. So what can, what can you tell us about those? Well, they were originally designed to move electricity uh, from the heartland and the Wabagum areas. Um, down to the Calgary area for export. And that's in the 2004 document. The problem that with that document is, even though we could foresee the Shepherd plant being built, uh, the, the document didn't even take that into consideration. Even though we could foresee the proposals and the future for renewable energy development in Southern Alberta, uh, they never took that into consideration either. Matter of fact, what they did is they, uh, it's called reverse engineering. They had to prove by that document that they could, they need the line, and it was just one line at the time. And um, they had to move certain considerations um, or exclude certain considerations so the numbers would add up. The problem that we have is that was for one high voltage AC line step in the government at the time and they legislated two HVDC lines and very, very short. And David Gray mentioned this to you. Um, and that's a problem in itself. Uh, HVDC is designed at, for its optimum use, a minimum 300 miles, uh, but you really want to go a thousand kilometers or more. Uh, that's where you get the real functionality of those lines. And what we have is the two, we have two disasters in my view, which have converters on each end, which are extremely expensive. And um, we're not getting anywhere near the use out of those lines because once the Shepherd plant went online, we didn't need to move money, uh, electricity to Calgary. Um, and in fact, sometimes um, that Shepherd plant is sending electricity north to Red Deer. I, I, I'm, I know that, so. Yeah, just as uh, some more background here, um, the NMAX, which is the Cal uh, city of Calgary-owned utility, uh, built the Shepherd natural gas power plant uh, down in the southeast, in fact, about a mile, mile from where I lived in Mackenzie Town. Uh, and <clears throat> it's an 850 megawatt capacity plant. And so the idea was, Joe, that the, these two uh, HVDC lines would would transmit Cal uh electricity from coal power plants in uh, central and, and northern Alberta down to Calgary. Then NMAX builds Shepherd, and suddenly there's no need for the for that electricity to be transmitted anymore. If I got that right? You got that right. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So, okay. So we've got this in, and we've got uh, four big projects. Uh, one of them is the uh, Heartland Transmission Project, which was a shorter line. To, to bring power down to the, the Heartland Industrial uh, region uh, in near Fort Saskatchewan, which is kind of northeast of, of Edmonton, uh, not that very far. And there are lots of pet petrochemical plants and so on there. We've got that. We've got these two HVDC uh, 
transmission lines. And I understand there was a fourth. What would the fourth be? Uh, I, I would call it the Southern Reinforcement, or you could call it the uh, twin uh, AC lines that went up to Fort McMurray. So there's a fourth and a fifth. Um, and see, one of the things engineering-wise that is a problem for Alberta, if your grid is underbuilt, that's problematic. It's just as problematic when it's overbuilt. Uh, electricity is one of these commodities. So, so you could, in natural gas, you could build extra pipelines. And that's just greater capacity to ship if you can find the natural gas. But in electricity, uh, you can't overbuild. You can cause more problems if you overbuild the system just as much as it's underbuilt. Electric, electricity is one of those commodities that it has to be there when you turn that switch on and it has to be correct. Um, so there's there's a lot more that goes into it. It's a simple technology with a lot of complications. You can't overbuild the system is the point I'm making. Yeah, power grids have been described to me by engineers as the, the biggest, most complex machine that humans have ever built. And it's not, you know, we, we think of electricity as you flick your the switch and your, your lights go on. You know, for, for the average consumer, that's what they know. Uh, and it's far more complex than that. But I want to provide a little context here, Joe, in that the time period that we're talking about, you know, 2000, 2005, 2010, um, prior to the big financial collapse, uh, the Great Recession, as it's often called, the kind of 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, power demand was going up by about 2% a year. There was, there was, and, and utilities... And when they were doing their regular their load forecasting, were you know expecting that every year they would have two two percent more load, and they would have to have more generation and more transmission and distribution, and so they were they were in a growth mode and had been for for years. And then what happened was that the there were a number, and I, and I know this in BC. I was doing some reporting on what happened with BC Hydro and why it got into trouble around this this time. Is is after the recession. Which, which basically bankrupted a number of large, uh, large industrial and commercial operations. And so, instead of the two coming out of the recession, they were were hoping for again or forecasting two percent growth, and they got flat growth. They got nothing, and right. and demand, and and then there were energy efficiency programs, and and we learned how to how to do more with less, basically, when it came to electricity, and so. Uh, from you know 2009 to now, the demand for most utilities has been flat, and yes. so all of this infrastructure that the government of Alberta anticipated would be needed because of this tremendous growth in the economy, and you know Alberta, Alberta was adding um, oil sands power plants, which were are enormous, uh, you know, use an enormous amount of electricity, and none of that happened. So they spent a bunch of money. Or, or they built a bunch of infrastructure that eventually became the cost of which was put on the ratepayers bill, and the the ratepayer has paid for uh, an overbuild of the system that wasn't required. Have I got right. that right? Yep. And uh, I went on the uh, Alberta Consumer Utility uh, Advocates webpage, and transmission charges now constitute about seventeen percent of a customer's total bill on average. Do you happen to know what it was before all of this infrastructure was was built out? 
Uh, well, it was half. Um, and actually, if, if you look at some of the regulated uh, areas like a Saskatchewan or a BC, you'll see it's even considerably less. Uh, I just want to point out one thing. Um, when you build your transmission system, and this is where uh, Alberta went wrong, uh, think of it in terms of just in time. You can't get too far out in front of your economy and mega build a system with the intention that your economy is going to double. It doesn't work that way. You have to uh, set a, a schedule where you want to be out in front so you can service your economic growth. But you, you, you have to be closer to reality versus um, planning on that exponential growth that you, you talked about because that's what they did. The other thing that they did wrong is they didn't even listen to the industry and they needed to have done that. And the industry was telling them uh, what the future really looked like in terms of renewables. We knew this way back when uh, it hadn't hit the market yet. Today, they're on the market. Um, changes in the grid. We're talking about a smart grid these days. And I think that's where this is going. I, I truly believe that's where this is going. Um, and also, uh, the battery technology, uh, particularly dealing with electric vehicles, is going to be a huge game changer with the grid and not the way you're probably hearing in the Alberta press or in <laughs> the industry itself. Um, so uh, you talked, I'll just finish off with this. You talked about the Ford F-150 electric uh, vehicle coming out. Well, that can power a house uh, for three to five days. Um, and you think about that in terms of, I've always made the prediction, once these automobile in, uh engineers perfect the batteries and the charging systems because Toyota now is going to come out with a new solid state battery. This is not, this is long in uh, the, the drawing room, but now it's actually going into production. Uh, basically they're looking at 700 miles to a charge and charging within what, 10 minutes or something like that. When you can take the guts of these and put them on your house, which that's what the Ford F-150 is actually telling us they can do. You just park it in the driveway versus attach it to your house. You can power your house with this. Now, that's a game changer for even charging your vehicle when you reverse that on a bi-directional charger. And, and the other thing is it stabilizes the grid. So engineers and planners, particularly economists, um, are static in their terms of technology. They look at the numbers, but they don't evaluate the technology that industry is telling us they're developing. And what can come out of the um, the planning stage and actually put being put into practicality, and we're there now. Yeah, that's something that's not appreciated in Canada anywhere, uh, but particularly no. in Alberta. Uh, I do a lot of reporting on the changes that are going on in the American power grid, and the difference between Canada and the United States is like night and day, because there they had an old aging grid that had lots of problems. And once, you know, you look at what happened in California, look what's happened with ERCOT in, in Texas. As soon as that grid is put under any stress, you know, whether it be extreme weather, it's, it's the shift to renewables, then they start having blackouts and, and, and brownouts and all sorts of problems with it. So the industry uh, and government realized, uh, I don't know when exactly, but certainly over the last, say, let's five years, let's pick that. And, you know, 
the, the Federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commission, FERC at the national level, the regional tran uh, transmission organizations at the regional level, the state utility, the utilities, the state regulators, all of them have been frantically working on reforming and 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 modernizing the American power grid. And it's an amazing thing to watch when you're a Canadian because almost nothing is happening in Canada. And down in the U.S., it's this frantic race to get this thing modernized. And all of what we're seeing now is a number of new technologies that we probably would never have talked about before, like, like uh, grid um, transmission technologies uh, that enable, you know, one and a half or two or sometimes even three times as much electricity to be transmitted over the same lines. And, yes. and 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 software and artificial intelligence and battery storage and compressed air storage and and market reform. There's another one that Canadians don't understand, even in Alberta, because, you know, we don't have markets. We don't have electricity markets in Canada. Well, they do down in the U.S. and they will trade electricity back and forth. Uh, in to compensate for the intermittency of renewables and and you know and it's not perfect because you know they're changing so rapidly that of course you have bumps in the road sometimes a lot of them and this is i guess to be expected but but that's the future of the power grid the smart yes, grid you call the, the smart grid yes exactly right and then there's there's virtual power plants and microgrids and i mean on and on and on the amount of technology that is changing in the power this staid conservative you know, a sector that, that never changed for 125 years is being revolutionized overnight and the Americans get it. And the Americans are pouring, you know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars into this and and adopting renewables like crazy on and on and on. And in, in, in Canada, we, we just we're clueless. We don't we don't just don't understand that. And that leads me to the recent decision by the uh, Alberta government to place a moratorium on wind and solar projects. Now, you have you said you were consulting with a couple of the, these projects. Uh, give us your take on that moratorium. Uh, it's disastrous. Uh, the one company that had contacted me and by the way, they contacted me on regulatory issues. Um, they wanted to have my input. And I I know the project, um, not in great detail, but I know of the project that they con were consulting me on. And I think they were looking to invest between two and $4 billion. And um, I'm not sure they're going to go forward. I think this moratorium just scared the bejeepers right out of them. Um, they, that kind of uncertainty to have a government step in they can handle market uncertainty. What they can't handle is an arbitrary um, authoritarian government that would just not even ask the industry and just for no logical reason. That's what's missing out of this. There's not a logical reason from many perspectives, just the moratorium, and, and nobody understands why. Yeah, that, this is something that is like I, I, you know, when I when I report on uh, energy issues in other provinces, but particularly in Alberta, regulatory change almost always in, uh, includes consultation, right? Like if you're at the federal, if you have the federal government, they 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 have a, like a process, you know, they they bring out a like a discussion paper, could be the oil and gas emissions cap, it could be 
the imp environmental impact assessment that came along with Bill C-69, whatever it is, there's a discussion paper and then there's consultation with the industry, with indigenous communities, with the with the provincial governments, regulatory bodies, on and on and on. Then there, you know, a revised discussion paper comes out and there's additional and, and you know, there's a lot of consultation that goes on. Uh, before legislation is introduced and, and regulations uh, are then drafted for that legislation. And then before the regulations are enacted, there's more consultation. I mean, as a rule, governments uh, approach regulatory change very cautiously. And I know that, you know, you know most people aren't familiar with the, the machinery of government that goes on, you know, that, that facilitates this and how the regulators approach it and so on. Uh, but generally, that's the case. And so for a government to come forward and enact a what is essentially a, a regulatory, make a regulatory change uh, for political reasons, that's the thing that investors hate. Because politics, oh, yes. politics comes out of nowhere. Regulatory change that comes out of process, they can at least participate in and know what's coming and then make decisions about whether they want to risk their capital or don't want to risk their capital but and but but change that's motivated and driven by by politics especially kind of radical out there you know on the fringe politics boy that that makes investors really really nervous now is that the message you're getting from the folks that you were consulting with oh absolutely uh and it's why they're consulting me um i I have been convinced over my experience um, in the last 20 years, the administrative process works if you keep the government out of it. Um, you set those rules down, industry can see what's developing. They get to participate in the policies and the rules that are going to affect them. So they can plan on how they're going to uh, navigate that. And that administrative process uh, in Alberta's is not that great, but it's still functional. It, it's still something you can work with. But you had a government that just arbitrarily stepped in unannounced and said, we're just going to. And that's exactly the twin 500 KV DC lines. Boom. Um, without any consultation, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And in this case, when the when Danielle Smith made the announcement three ish weeks ago, uh, she included in her press release two letters, one from the Alberta Utilities Commission, which is the regulator, and one from the Alberta Electrical Systems Operator, which is basically operates the, the, the system. And she claimed that those letters supported the moratorium. And in fact, all, they didn't do that. I mean, she lied. That, that's just a yes. flat out. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the extraordinary thing here is that if she had said, I have two letters and they say this, and then she lied and you couldn't check her, that would be one thing. But when she includes, she lies about the letters and then includes them with her press release so that anybody can go back and read them and see what the, the, the regulator and the system operator actually said, which is what they said. OK, we acknowledge that you're putting in a moratorium, not that we're supporting it, just we're acknowledging it that you did it. It's I just the politics of that, Joe, I can, are extraordinary. Now, when you were in a Wild Rose MLA from 2012, you were elected as a Wild Rose MLA in 2012. Danielle Smith was the leader. What yes. ins what insights can you provide uh, into her decision making, you know, uh, capacity or process or her, her, you know, the way she approaches these kinds of issues that are relevant to the moratorium? I think people would be shocked or maybe not shocked. Uh, my office was up on the seventh floor 
her office was a couple of stories down um, until they made a press room up on the seventh floor. Um, in the three years before I went independent, uh, I don't think she ever once even stuck her head in my office. I know one other MLA where she may have popped her head in his office and said, how are you doing? She never once, to my knowledge, really went around to all the MLAs and asked for input. Uh, she stayed pretty much locked away in her office and you had to, as an MLA, try to get past the gatekeepers to try to have a discussion with her, which was what was important in your constituency. It was extremely difficult. Um, I, you know, I have a military background. I was in the police force. I was with the Canadian Coast Guard. I, I, I did things in my life. I understand leadership. Uh, I never once experienced or saw her demonstrate uh, any type of leadership uh, that I would have expected out of a, a party leader. I, I didn't see it. And the truth is, what transpired was direct result of lack of leadership. When they got afraid of Jim Prentice, they crossed the floor. Um, the, the, and the public thinks they have a leader or her supporters think they have a leader. I've not seen that yet. Is it fair to say that Danielle Smith is not a leader? She's an ideologue? Oh, I think that's more accurate than fair. Uh, I still believe that today. Uh, she's always been that when I knew her uh, as an MLA. And everything I see right up to now is the exact same thing. She's not a leader. She's strictly an ideologue. And, and some of the things that she believes cannot be supported by any data or any facts, but she believes it to be true. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I mean, the, the comments that she makes, uh, and I'm including comments that she makes in, the, in, in, you know, letters to the prime minister talking about energy issues. And they're, you know, those are the things, it's one thing for her to speak extemporaneously at a press conference or at an event, right? I mean, you know, Lead, political leaders let their hair down a little bit sometimes and say things that, you know, raise an eyebrow. But the stuff that she writes to the prime minister that supposedly you would think would be vetted by staff, vetted by, you know, maybe the energy department would have a, a go at the letter, that sort of thing, are extraordinary. Like she, she said one time in a letter, she said, if we can sell enough clean L Canadian LNG using Alberta natural gas, to Asia, we will we can under Article Six of the Paris Agreement earn enough emissions credit to wipe out the entire Canadian greenhouse gas inventory. Now, I, you know, maybe listeners are scratching their head, going, "Well, why is that extraordinary?" Well, folks, that's six hundred and seventy megatons of emissions a year. You, I don't know how much LNG you would have to ship to to make that happen. It would be a, a huge amount. Uh, and it can't happen under under Article Six. Okay, so I mean, this is a fantasy. This is yes. just a complete and utter fantasy, and yet she believes it and promotes it and and lobbies the the government for it. And you can see this approach to policy over and over and over again. And within that context, the moratorium on renewables makes perfect sense. I can imagine a small group of caucus members, you know, from the United Conservative Party going in and talking to her and saying, 
you know, we got a problem with you and blah, whatever. And and if you want our support on something, uh, the price is you're going to have to uh, stop, put a moratorium on renewables while we figure out, you know, whatever. Our, 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 our voters don't like it because it's using farmland. And she just goes, okay. And then a press release goes out and poof, there's a moratorium. I, I can see that the, the decision-making process being that goofy. Uh, I agree with you. And, I, and that may just well happen. Uh, she had to get information from somewhere. So um, whoever filled her ears uh, was sputtering nonsense and she bought into it. That, that's all I can uh, deduce from what, what's going on here. Right, she's one of no those pol political leaders that whoever has her ear last, uh, it basically gets what they want. It's a model of Donald Trump, to be quite honest. Uh, if you know Donald Trump's history, that's exactly it. The last one in the room has his ear. Um, and that's one of the great problems of his presidency, among other problems, uh, of course. But um, yeah, that's exactly what I, I'm seeing. And it's what I experienced when I knew her back when I was in MLA. Okay, well, we've we've uh, we've criticized uh, Danielle Smith, uh, which happens quite frequently on on this podcast for some reason. Uh, so let's move on to the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is what you've been doing recently, because uh, you went back to law school at the age of 60, which is an extraordinary thing in itself. But what you did after you graduated and were admitted to the bar in California, I think is just as extraordinary. And why don't you tell us what you're up to? Well, my main law practice, I'm referred to as a solo practitioner. Um, I didn't, I, I, I'm not a law firm kind of guy. Um, as much as I teetered and played with a lot of lawyers in Alberta over the years, um, I mostly represent veterans uh, pro bono, which is I don't charge, uh, trying to secure the benefits that and the care that they are entitled to. And it, it's heartbreaking. I won't tell you the war stories I deal with, but uh, I, I can't say no a lot um, when, I, when I get some of these stories of veterans who are really in need of care and nobody's advocating for them. So uh, I do, uh, a lot of the work I do doesn't have to go to court, but it may have to go to appeal at the VA. Uh, I did, I just got back from a, a case that was in the Court of Veterans Appeals, which is located in Washington. Um, and I did that hearing. Um, I, I love what I do because I'm a veteran. So these young people coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and the various uh, times they've served over there. Um, and, and you know this and most Canadians know this. Many of the Vietnam veterans that I'm fully aware of ended up out on the street with PTSD and uh, they never got the care that they were uh, promised they would get. So I've really work myself to a point where um, I, I do the best I can for these people. And then on the other side, uh, I still do consulting in the Alberta energy industry, particularly dealing with the regulatory process because uh, I'm familiar with it. And then of course, um, there are some other areas that uh, I'll pick up a case here and there, but uh, I, it's been an interesting journey for me. <laughs> so just a little background here. You're uh, originally uh, an American uh, from Maine. And uh, when did you move to Alberta? Uh, Vermont, uh, just so oh. we're clear. Um, it's really important. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I moved, understand. Uh, I immigrated in 1995. Um, and I 
we decided to, my, my wife's family is from the prairies and we wanted to be close to my wife's family. So we moved to Rimby, Alberta uh, in 2004. And Rimby um, is a small town kind of north, south of Red Deer, right? Uh, it's a small town north of Red Deer, north of Sorry? Sylvan Lake. My mistake. Yep. For all the Rimbyites out there, I apologize. I haven't had the <laughs> pleasure of visiting. Haven't had the pleasure of visiting Rimby yet, but I did look it up on a map one time, but I I forgot where where it was. So my apologies. Uh, and, okay. now, and now I live in Buck Lake, and you'll have to look that up. <laughs> I will indeed. And anybody who who wants to know where you live can do the same thing using Google Maps. But the thing that I wanted to close up, up with Joe is the is the one uh, what really strikes me here is that here you are. Uh, you're, uh, a, you became a lawyer in your mid sixties. Uh, you're now living in Alberta, uh, admitted to the bar in California, advocating for American soldiers, uh, and trying on a pro bono basis out of Alberta. I mean, yes. I'm sorry, my friend, but that as a, prof that as a professional business model that I've not heard that one before. Um, Thanks to technology, and I will tell you, uh, one of the, the, there's not a lot of positives that came out of the pandemic, um, but so much of the courtrooms, which are courts, courts in Canada and the United States, these are dinosaurs too. They don't like to adopt new technologies easily, um, but they had to move quickly to go online for a lot of hearings or a lot of processes. So that's what allowed me to practice law in the States for these veterans. Uh, the Court of Veterans Appeal is a written court. So you have to submit, although there are um, oral hearings, but um, a lot of the courts today, uh, and particularly what I do with the VA down in the US is all written. So it's a matter of making contact with the veteran, a matter of finding out what it is that is going on, doing the research to see if they qualify. And many of them do. Um, and usually they get rejected at the first round. And that's when I come in and, and look over the data and say, no, no, let, let's let's appeal this and see what we can get you. Well, you're uh you're uh doing uh, and I say this as a a longtime atheist, you're doing God's work. So good, good, <laughs> good on you, good on you, and thank and you. Uh, thank you very much for this. You you provided a lot of insights into the issues around both the the problems and the the cost for consumers in Alberta. And, and I and I I want to close on this because you mentioned David Gray, and I've interviewed him a couple times now about these issues, and and there was a chart going out around making the rounds a couple of days ago that showed that in one year Alberta electricity prices for consumers had risen 128%. So expected to double again. Yes, and and that and as David Gray explained that's due to economic withholding. There are there are a few large generators in Alberta and they basically uh one of them will withhold uh capacity uh and so that they're uh, in in the deregulated market in Alberta, they withhold capacity, and then that drives prices up. And so, even though they generate less, they make everybody makes more profit. And uh, this has been going on for a couple of years now, and it's led to basically David said that the doubling of electricity prices, but it looks like in fact it's been more than that. And so, and then you hear consumers complain all the time about the additional fees and charges around transmission and distribution. And so, Alberta consumers have huge electricity bills. 
now as a yes. as a consequence of this and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to talk about transmission is because it's not just the price of electricity it's all of the other charges and there's history to that with this these problems around transmission overbuilding the transmission system which then leads to higher fees and the whole thing is just a complete mess and then you throw in the 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 renewables moratorium which would have brought more low cost wind and solar into the system and maybe provided some relief for consumers and now Pat's had a dagger uh, struck in his heart. So it, it, it it's a real mess. And Joe, thank you. You've done a, a service today uh, providing insight into that. And I just want to finish with this. Economic withholding is a criminal activity in other jurisdictions. You need to know that. Oh, and I Alberta, didn't know that. I, I didn't think you did. So um, it's illegal and it's criminal in other jurisdictions, but it is legal in Alberta. And we can finish on that note to another interview another day. I, I have to say, uh, Alberta is very fond of monopolies and oligopolies. It tends to 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 like to give those kinds of powers to large economic players like utilities and oil companies and so yeah. on, and uh, and not a, always a, not a good thing. So anyway, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.